The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. When it comes to parenting, there is a dynamic as a parent where you see your children in many ways becoming like you. And that is both a joy and a great fear because they take on some good parts and they take on some challenging parts of, of who we are. I was just recently reminded of that with um, one of our kids, and I see this all the time, but this one particular moment just really struck me. Uh, Rebecca and I have three kids. Our, our oldest two are in um, elementary school. The youngest is in preschool. And I was working with one of the older two, and um, you know, all of all of our kids, you know, they have strengths and weaknesses. They're bright kids. We excited for them. We cheer them on. But they have parts of their life they have to work on a little extra harder. They just maybe don't have uh, natural instincts at that. And one of my kids does not have natural instincts when it comes to spelling. And so I don't know if you've ever, if one of your kids have ever struggled with spelling. But spelling is a challenge to work on with one of your kids because it's not like math or science. You know, if it's science and they're not understanding, you can just pause and maybe take another track to explain it, okay? If it's math they're not understanding, you can, you know, maybe get some object lessons and you add these apples with these apples and you take these apples away. I mean, you can try another track to explain it, but with spelling... If they're not getting it, there's just nothing left to do, okay? Like, there's nowhere to go, okay? And I remember this one point, it was like the, you know, like the seventh time through, and I, and I was like, no, there, there's that silent H in there, and we'd already talked about that, and, and we're both kind of looking at each other like, we're kind of at an impasse here, are we? Like, there's, no, there's nothing left to say, nothing left to do. You may not ever learn how to spell this word, and I'm just going to have to be okay with that, all right? And I'm feeling like my blood pressure rising. I mean, they're doing the best they can. They're trying, and, and they're, they're putting in the hard work, and I, I understand that. But at the same time, like, I'm feeling my frustration starting to rise, and then it's like I had a vision. I have this clear vision, and I remember, like in a flash, I'm standing back in the living room of my parents' house where I grew up. And I'm standing in the middle of the living room, and I just saw my mother sitting there holding my spelling book. And I saw the look on her face, perspiration on her forehead, her jaw clenched as she went for the seventh time through a word that had a silent H in it that I didn't get. And suddenly, it was like the Lord finally nudged me and says, you are terrible at spelling. And I remembered, I'm like, that's right, I was so bad at spelling. And the Lord's like, no, no, you are terrible at spelling. <laughs> like to this day, okay, like I invented spell check for you, okay, like that's what it's there. And I, all of a sudden my perspective changed and I look at my child and I just want to feel like, I did this to you, like it's my fault, I'm sorry. Okay, there is this dynamic when it comes to parenting. And really it's true of all leadership and when it comes to leadership, there's a way in which we reproduce ourselves in those we lead, some to a, a large degree, uh, depending on the proximity and the time you serve with a leader, um, some maybe to a smaller degree, but there is a dynamic in leadership where really we're, we can't help it, 
We're reproducing ourselves, and that's very true of parenting as a form of leadership. So whether you have biological kids, adopted kids, we, we can't help it. The people that are closest to you, the people you influence, you're kind of reproducing yourself. You're influencing them to be like you, whether we like it or not. Now, I bring that up because our series that we're wrapping up today is called The Call of the Lion. And we're talking about what it means to follow Jesus. And the way Jesus says it is he calls us to be his disciples. The ancient Greek word there is mathetes. He calls us to be his mathetes. And we use that ancient Greek word because we're trying to capture the original intensity, the original meaning of what it means to follow Jesus and be his disciple or his mathetes. And in that ancient context, a rabbi would have a mathetes or a disciple. And the understanding was that that disciple would become like the rabbi. The rabbi would be reproducing themselves in that disciple. And the longer and closer you followed that individual as a mathetes, as a disciple, the more you were becoming like that individual. They really leaned into that natural concept of leadership and really pushed on that. That was the idea of being a disciple or a mathetes. And that is very explicitly in the Bible. If we are following Jesus, explicitly the point is, as his disciple, as his mathetes, he's making us more like him. That's prompted this series to say, okay, what is this call to follow Jesus? What we need to know is we need to know more about who Jesus is. And one of the images we see describing Jesus is he's a lion. And all the way back in Genesis, in chapter 49, there's a promised king that will come from the tribe of Judah, and it says he is like a lion. He is the lion, the lion of Judah. Now, bring these two things together. If Jesus is the lion... And we're his mathetes, we're his disciple. Jesus is a lion and he's making us like him. Then what is he making us into if he's the lion of Judah? I want to show you what the Bible says. And I think this is critical for whatever we're walking through. Uh, whatever season of life you're in, I want you to know what this says that he's making you into. We're going to go to the book of Micah in the Bible. Open with me in your Bible to the book of Micah. We're going to go to chapter 5. Micah is a prophet. This particular book is called one of the minor prophets. That doesn't mean it's less important. It's just part of the Old Testament where there are smaller um, prophetic books. One of them is the book of Micah. We're going to go to chapter 5. Here's what this says. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now let me just pause after verse 1 just to give us some context. Micah is written 700 to 750 years before the time of Christ. Right now, the superpower of the day is the Assyrians. 
Micah 5 opens up by saying, it is a time of war, get your troops together. Very dramatic language right up front. And it says a, a siege has been laid against us. Now this is, it's worded as if it's as good as done, but it's something that has not happened yet. But we find out through the historical books in the Old Testament that it is indeed about to happen, literally. Literally, the Assyrians who are just marching through on conquest throughout the known world is moving towards this part of the world and they will besiege Jerusalem. Now we know quite a bit about what Assyrian, historically we know quite a bit about what a, an Assyrian uh, siege would be like. They would encamp all the way around a city. The city would be hiding in their, in their walls and they would do all types of horrifying, terrible things outside the city to intimidate those inside to surrender. They would be cutting off their food and try and cut off their water supply so that the people inside had to, had to choose, do, do we want to starve to death or do we want to surrender or do we want to take our chances fighting against the world's most formidable army at the time? Honestly, I'll spare you the details, but the Assyrians loved to brag about what they did and they, would, they wrote about it, they carved it in relief work so you can still see in museums. I'll spare you the details, but it is hard to imagine a more terrifying thing. I mean, truly, hard to imagine a more terrifying thing than to be locked inside a city, inside the walls, with absolute horrors waiting for you on the, on the outside of those walls, with nothing to do. It opens up Micah 5. It says, it is a time of war. Get your troops ready. There is a siege that, has, that will come against you. Starts with the gravity of that. Now, what else is it going to say? It's actually gonna turn a corner here pretty dramatically. Let's pick it up in verse two. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me one who is the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now pause with me on verse two. He says very simply, look, time of war, there's a siege coming. Then he switches gears and he says, but there is a ruler that is coming. He's gonna come up out of you, little town of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is a little village a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, and he says, out of this little village, it's not where you'd expect a mighty ruler to come from, but outside of this little village will come a ruler. It is a ruler from ancient of days. I think there's um, a couple layers that this is talking about here. On one hand, it's talking about the fact that this ruler is the one that has been prophesied and foretold for hundreds and, and thousands of years. In fact, if we go back to part one of our series, uh, we were looking at Genesis 49. Over uh, in, to God's people, over the people of Israel, there was promised a significant ruler that would come out of the tribe of Judah, the Lion of Judah. So this in Micah 5, probably something like 1,200 years later after that moment when that was prophesied to, to the person of Judah, 
It's saying that ancient ruler will come out of Bethlehem. Now, on another level, it's saying this is an ancient one. It uses the phrase uh, from ancient days. There's uh, the name ancient of days that is sometimes in the Old Testament applied to God himself. And so this may be operating on another level as well, hinting that this ruler will not just be any human ruler. It'll be God in human flesh. Now, if only we could think of someone that was born in Bethlehem. Like, if we could just come up with someone who was born in the little town of Bethlehem. Um, of course, we will in a few months be hearing the song all over the place, the little town of Bethlehem, because uh, we go most of the year without talking about Bethlehem. And then in December, we talk about Bethlehem a lot because that is where Jesus was born. And what's significant about Bethlehem is it's situated in within the tribe of Judah. It's actually um, the town where David himself was from, also where there's a promise that, the, that a king would come. And so it's right there in Bethlehem. Now, I just want to take a second and state this. When you see things like this, that 700 to 750 years before Jesus, it was prophesied that the ancient promised king would come from Bethlehem. It's significant. This is prophecy. This is evidence that God has preserved, that God wants us to see. And if you are someone who asks the tough questions, maybe consider yourself a skeptic. I applaud you for leaning in and, and being, having integrity as you're asking the tough questions. But I want to draw your attention to the fact that 750 years before Jesus was born, it prophesied that the Messiah, the king, the great king, would come out of Bethlehem. And you say, yeah, but maybe that's all made up. In 1952, out by the Dead Sea, Cave four of the of Qumran caves, they found the mother load of ancient documents. It's the greatest archaeological find of the 20th century. It was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in cave four, they found so many ancient copies, some of the, of, of the tens of thousands of ancient scripture manuscripts, they found some of the oldest ever found in that cave in 1952. You can go online and see them uh, exhibited in various museums around the world. And one of those fragments, there were several, many, but one was of this verse about the king coming from Bethlehem out of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That was dated um, something like 175 years before the time of Jesus. It is historically proven this was written generations before Jesus was ever on the scene. Let that swell your faith. It's a time of war, but their hope is going to be in a ruler, a king that will rise up. What will the king do? Let's pick it up in verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." Such beautiful language. Let me pause here just for a second. 
That word peace in the Hebrew is the word shalom. He himself will be their shalom. Shalom is not just a Hebrew greeting. Shalom is a very rich Hebrew concept. It doesn't just mean peace. It means holistic peace. Everything is thriving. And he says that, it says this about this ruler that's going to come out of Bethlehem. His reign will be extend. He'll be great. His reign will extend among all peoples. And how will he rule? He will shepherd in such a way. This is such beautiful language. Listen to this. He will shepherd in such a way that they will all dwell secure. And he himself will be their peace. He will cause them to thrive. They will be well taken care of. One of the things that this king will do is he will cause them to thrive. He will cause them to be secure. But there's another thing this king will do. Let's keep going. Let's pick it up in verse 7. I'm sorry, let's read verse 5 again. And he shall be their peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its gates. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Second thing the king will do, this king from Bethlehem, he'll cause his kingdom that is, extends to all peoples, he will cause his kingdom to thrive. There will be shalom. There will be security and safety. But the second thing, he says he will fight back and defeat their enemies, Assyria. And he will raise up, he says, seven princes, no eight. This is a poetic language. You see this showing up in various places throughout the, uh, throughout the Old Testament, the Psalms and other part of the poetic parts of the Old Testament, when it says um, seven, even eight, it's basically saying many, many rulers. He'll raise up many around them that will rule at the gates. They will be ruling, and he will conquer the Assyrians. Now, just take a time out with me for just a second. The king's going to do two things. He's going to cause them to thrive, and he's going to defeat their enemies. Now, what is he literally talking about? Is this literal Assyria when they siege Jerusalem? Or is this a symbol? Is Assyria a symbol of the enemies of God's people? Well, here's what actually literally historically happened. We know this both from the biblical account and from the Assyrian historical account. The Assyrians come and they siege Jerusalem. All of the, the, the people from Jerusalem and the surrounding region are all locked inside Jerusalem and it is utterly terrifying. They're praying, they're seeking the Lord, and the Lord answered. And the Assyrians abandoned their siege because the Lord rose up against them. You can go back and read the story in the Bible. Abandoned their siege and left them. Now, what this says is that the king that had come from Bethlehem will rule Assyria. So what actually happened historically, did the people of Jerusalem chase the Assyrians down, conquer the Assyrians, and then rule even in their capital and their gates? No, that's not what happened with ancient Assyria. 
The Assyrians left, God's people praised God, they momentarily turned back to the Lord, but it was eventually the Babylonians that defeat the Assyrians. Eventually, God's people turn back away from the Lord. The Babylonians come in. They conquer Jerusalem. They bring people back to Babylon into exile. People like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get brought back to Babylon. They serve there in Babylon. They're trying to figure out we're not even in the promised land anymore. Then the Persians rise up. They defeat Babylon. Daniel, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, survived that. Now he's serving in Persia. You have people like Esther who's there during the the time of Persia. Then the Persian kings send God's people back to Jerusalem. You've got guys like Ezra and Nehemiah. They go back. They rebuild Jerusalem. Then the Greeks uh, take over, become the world power. Then the Romans take over the world power. And then there's a prophet that was promised at the end of the Old Testament to declare the way for the Messiah, John the Baptist. And then Jesus. And Jesus sets up a new kingdom. But he's setting up a new kingdom while the Romans are ruling. Did they ever defeat the Assyrians? No. I mean, what is he talking about here? He's talking about a different type of enemy that will be defeated. All right. Let's bring this down to earth. A couple more verses. Because this has incredible implications for you. Last few verses of Micah 5. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and your enemies shall be cut off. Now look what this says. We're going to pause there for today. Look what this says. It's talking about the king, and it says two things. The king will um, cause his kingdom to thrive and then will defeat his enemies. But then it turns and it talks about the remnant of Jacob. That is the remaining people of God's people. It says basically the people that follow this king. This is what they're like. And it says two things about God's people. He says, and both times it says that they're spread out among many peoples. And then he says two, two similes. The first one is he says, they will be like dew. Now, I don't think about the dew on the ground very often. But I want you to think about that with me. I don't know if you um, were noticing what the weather was like on Friday. Anyone go outside on Friday? If you're watching online, maybe you don't live locally, uh, you may not... No, but for those of us that live down here in South Florida, man, Friday was an incredibly gorgeous day, right? I mean, it was incredible. Like we got, like it got down into like the frigid 70s for a minute, okay? It was like fall is upon us for five minutes, you know? Bust out the winter jacket. But it was gorgeous. I mean, like the, the storm clouds were gone. It was like there wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was like this crisp day. Everything seemed lush. 
The grass seemed greener. I mean, it's like the birds are chirping again. The breeze is kind of rustling through the palm trees. And I want you to imagine a morning like that. And I want you to imagine you go out and you look at your lawn. Now, I'm hoping your lawn is not like mine. It's green. Okay, and I want you to imagine you have a beautiful green lawn, and I want you to imagine it's in the morning, and it's got the crispness of the morning, and you get down, and you squat down, and you just look at the, the grass blades with all the dew on the ground. I think we got a picture of it. Yeah, let's look at it. I just want you to imagine the dew on the ground. It's really, I mean, I don't think about dew like ever, but if you think about it, I mean, think about dew on the grass. I mean, like, it's just perfectly spread out, just a minuscule little drop evenly sprinkled out all over every surface, all the plants, all the leaves, all the blades of grass. I mean, it, it's, it happens so consistently, it's so regular that we forget about it. And yet it's really, truly extraordinary. It's so small and subtle, but it really is extraordinary. You and I, we can't water the grass the way dew perfectly waters everything and nourishes everything. Like if we go to water our grass and you got out there with the hose, I mean, you're going to accidentally put like way too many gallons on this section and you're going to forget about this section and kind of, you know, water this section kind of mediocre. I mean, it's hard to get everything perfect. But dew, I mean, if you think about it, it's really extraordinary, right? I mean, everything is just perfectly sprinkled out, evenly spread out, and perfectly nourished. It seems so regular, so subtle, so uh, we, we can forget about it. It just seems so often that it happens that we forget about actually how extraordinary the dew is that nourishes everything, and it's done in a way that no human could replicate, really. God does, and actually talks about it here. It says, no human can hold it back. It's like, dew is really mighty. And we don't think about dew as being mighty, but you can't stop it. Like, you can't stop dew. I mean, it actually is more mighty than you realize, as subtle as it is. He says, the remnant will be mighty like dew. <laughs> then he says the second thing says the same thing. He repeats it over. He says, um, God's people will be, again, spread out among many. He says, and I will make them a lion. Talk about like opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Something regular, everyday, subtle, gentle, delicate like dew. And then something terrifying and ferocious and violent like a lion. And make no mistake, he's not just saying a lion like regal, but not violent. He actually is not meaning that. Maybe the regal part too, but he specifically says, like a lion that will tear, rip and tear its enemies down. Enemies will be defeated. Now I want you to look at these two things, like do and like a lion, and I want you to notice what is this text saying? Let's get the big idea here. In the same way, watch, it's in there. In the same way that the king will cause his whole kingdom to thrive and have shalom. And the king from Bethlehem, this ancient one, this, 
this promised lion of Judah, in the same way the king will secondarily not only cause his kingdom to thrive, but will also defeat his enemies. Now what will he reproduce in, his, in this remnant, in his followers, in the citizens of his kingdom? They will be like dew, nourishing wherever they are, causing it to thrive. And they will be like a lion bringing down their enemy. Do you see that? The lion of Judah reproduces himself in this remnant. In other words, we've been talking about the lion of Judah. But the lion of Judah is going to make his followers like him. Here's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about, um, I mean, who, who is, who's the remnant? Who are those that are following Jesus? Uh, the, it's who's following the king, who's following the Lion of Judah, following um, the king that was born in Bethlehem and raised up and who will rule for all time. Who is this remnant that is like the dew? Who is the remnant that is like a lion? It is anyone who follows Jesus, his mathetes, his disciples, and he's making those of us who follow Jesus like himself. Here's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the idea of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and we talked about Jesus is the, the promised lion of Judah. He's the ultimate king of kings. So if you're following, if you're a mathetes of the king of kings, that is an all or nothing situation. It's not just, you don't just sprinkle a little bit more following Jesus in your life as one of the plates you're keeping spinning in your life. No, it is all or nothing because he is an ultimate king. We talked about how in the book of Daniel, we get this incredible picture of our rescue from the mouths of our enemies who are like lions, but not the true lion. And so every mathetes, every follower of Jesus, we start by realizing we have been rescued. Our salvation is not something we do. We've been rescued. Last week, we looked in the book of Revelation and waiting for the ultimate king, who the ultimate one who will fulfill God's plan of redemption, it is the lion who's victorious as a lamb through his self-sacrifice. And as all the elders fell down in worship, we realize a mathetes, an all-or-nothing mathetes, is rescued, a mathetes is awestruck, and what we see today, every mathetes, every follower of Christ, everyone who is in the kingdom of King Jesus, he has a mission he is sending you on. He is making you like something. He is making you like dew. He is making you like a lion. In other words, it's not that we have something we're trying to make ourselves into and asking Jesus to help. He has an agenda of what he's making each one of us into. It's two things, just like him. Let's make this real practical. When it comes to your life, here's the first thing that this says that King Jesus is making you into. He's making you like do, which means this. You are perfectly placed. You are perfectly placed wherever you're at right now to bring nourishment to your city. You are perfectly placed right now to bring nourishment to your city. Dew is mighty in the aspect that no human could possibly be that thorough and intentional. 
And God's saying, that's what he's done with you. He's placed you in the neighborhood that you're in. In that apartment, in that house, in that townhouse. He's placed you in that friend group that you're in. It's a little drop over here. There's another drop over here. You're in that office, that workplace, that station, that school. You are in that place, and he perfectly placed you there. You're in the family that you're in. He placed you there. There's a particular Publix that you shop at. He placed you there. There's a route you drive to work or you drop the kids off. He placed you there. There's a carpool line you sit in. There's, there's a social media group of friends. He placed you there. You and I, we're like do. All of it is intentional, and you have been placed in every single one of those spaces like mighty do spread across the landscape of our city. All of us spread out. Why? To bring nourishment, to lift up, to water, to make the dead places alive in that exact spot in all of those spots that you've been placed. This is like the Old Testament version of Jesus' illustration when he looked at his mathetes and he said, you are the salt of the earth. You've been sprinkled a granule here, a granule here, a granule here, not just to flavor your world, but to preserve your world. And in the Old Testament, it's like you are a, you are dew, you are a little droplet of dew and each one of us spread out in all of those places. Why? To bring life to bring love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. You are there to, to leverage your moment in there for leadership, for justice, for influence, for godliness, for righteousness. You are there to show kindness. You're there to be a good Samaritan. You're there to be a, a positive leader. You're there to, to bring your prayers. You're there to, to influence for good. You're there to bring the gospel and the hope of Jesus. You are a little droplet in all of those those places, the dew is already spread across South Florida. All that it takes is for you and I to wake up tomorrow and realize you are an agent of God bringing life to that area. You're bringing life to the city, not just the hour and a half we meet together as a church once a week, but it's tomorrow. It's in everything you do, he's going to give you a space to bring nourishment. Here's what we so often miss, Christians. We're waiting for like, what's the big thing? Like, what's the big moment that I have? And I, I wanna do something that I, I, that's extraordinary, but I just feel so ordinary. You're missing the metaphor of do. The extraordinary, mighty nature of dew is that it has been placed by God strategically and its consistent, subtle presence. These moments that feel very ordinary every morning when we walk across the grass are actually more extraordinary than you can imagine by your consistent life-giving, subtle presence, as we're all subtly bringing life through South Florida, he will do the mighty thing of reviving and nourishing South Florida. You are perfectly placed 
to bring nourishment to your city. But here's the second thing. Um, we are perfectly placed to bring down the enemy in our city. Do by its nature as a metaphor is um, scattered out. But what's interesting about the lion metaphor is it's singular. The remnant is not many lions. The remnant together is a lion. He's making our efforts together like a lion in the midst, bringing down our enemy. In other words, this is a reminder of right where Micah 5 started. What he says is, this is a time of war. This is a time of war. And there's two dangers that Christians often fall in. One, they don't know who the enemy is. And two, they don't realize it's a war, one or the other. Let's talk about the first one because the Bible is really, really explicit. Who is our enemy? And I'm so glad that the Bible is very clear about who our enemy is because if we, miss, if we mistake our enemy for something it's not, we might be doing significant damage against the work of what Jesus is trying to do. Here is clearly who our enemy is. Ephesians 6 verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the steams of who? What does it say? The devil. devil. Stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have an enemy. It is the devil. It is spiritual forces of evil trying to attack and bring down the kingdom of God and stop the kingdom of God. But it doesn't just tell us who our enemy is. It reminds us who our enemy is not. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. People are not our enemies. If we think people are our enemies, we may be doing damage to people who are children of God. That's friendly fire. So enemies are not people. Your enemy is not your terrible boss. Your enemy is not your neighbor who broke your lawnmower. That's not your enemy. Your enemy is not that friend who stabbed you in the back. Your enemy is not that family member that you're not on speaking terms with. Your enemy is not that coworker who has differing political views than you. Your enemy is not a political party that has differing views than you. That's not the great enemy we need to defeat, that you need to defeat. The enemy is not flesh and blood. Those are all that we just mentioned, children of God that God loves and wants them to be reached. Our enemy is the devil. The powers of the dark forces that are trying to hold back the kingdom of God. That is who our enemy is. What we do towards those on this earth that hurt us 
is we bless those who persecute, you, persecute us. We pray for them. We bless and do not curse. What we do is we say like Jesus did. We say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do to us. We want, we want to see them like God sees them. The first challenge that so many Christians, maybe they are in battle mode. They're just fighting the wrong battle. The battle is not. It's explicit against flesh and blood. It's against the enemy. That is where our battle is. That is why the scripture can use such violent terms because we're trying to tear down what that enemy is doing. But the second thing is sometimes Christians, we forget that we're in a battle. And the narrative we reduce our lives, we just adopt the narrative of our generation and our world and we make our narrative of our life, we make the story of our life. Well, I'm in a season where I'm working hard now. I don't take as much vacation time as I'd like. I probably should spend more time with my family, but I'm working, working, working now. I'm trying to make something of myself, and then I'll rest and relax later when I, when I retire. But right now is hustle mode. I gotta run, I gotta balance everything, and I'm trying to stay religious and keep Jesus in the mix too because, you know, he helps me as I'm working hard and achieve my dreams so that I can retire later. That is the world's story, and that is not compatible to what the Bible says is the story of your life. Your life is while you are alive, you are fighting a battle for the kingdom of God. And your rest is when you, your great rest is when you close your eyes and take your final breath on this planet and then wake up into eternity the great Sabbath for your soul, you, that is your rest. But as long as you're alive here, Christian, you've been given a mission to establish the kingdom of God. That's what we do together. We fight to bring down the work of the enemy. What's the work of the enemy? Well, he's a liar. And so how do you do this? I mean, it's not super complicated. This is the work as, as a single lion together as a church. This is the work we do together. Some of you recently just signed up to be a part of a small group. And you're a part of a small group. Why? What are you doing? It's not just a place to eat chips and dip with some Christian friends. <laughs> if your group doesn't have chips and dip, there is something wrong with it. Okay, but that's not the main point. Okay, that is supposed to be there though. All right. What is the point of that group? There are lies. The enemy speaks over our life. You're not good enough. You're not successful enough. You're not loved enough. If they knew who you really were, you're the only one who struggles with this. There's all these lies, and when you come together around God's word, you tear down those lies together. Hallelujah. That's why you don't just go to group when you're feeling up for it. You don't just go to group when it's, something's in it for you. You're going to battle in that group together, fighting for each other. That's a work we do together. If you're not in a group, you're, you need that army around you praying for you, speaking into your life, exploring, following the great king together. Some of you recently signed up to serve. What are we doing? We're fighting a battle together for our children. You're serving in kids' ministry because you're fighting over the lies of the enemy, the influence of the enemy over our children, over our students, over our young adults. There are people that come on Sunday morning and they wander into Cooper City or here and there are all these lies swirling in their mind of, you're not supposed to be there. If they knew who you are, God doesn't even want you here. You're such a hypocrite. And they're walking with all the attack of these lies, but when they see one smiling, friendly face welcoming them in at the door and helping them find a seat and a friendly person coming up and giving them a hug, we're tearing down the lies of the enemy 
because we're called to be a lion in our city. And church, it's, by the way, City Rev is not the lion. It's the South Florida church that's the lion. We're part of a greater unity of churches in South Florida that's rising up as the body of Christ. He's making us like himself, like a lion, that we might work together and see South Florida transformed by the power of the gospel in our generation. We get the privilege of being a part of that. Now here's where this text intersects with most of our lives, and I'll close with this. The bottom line is we're all gonna walk out of here. And every one of us has a thousand things pulling on us. Worries of your career. Worries about your kids or your grandkids. Financial worries, how am I gonna pay for this? Groceries cost more, gas, you know, all this. I can't do all of it. How do I manage and keep all of these things, all of the complexity? See, here's what's so powerful about the scripture. It makes it very, very, very simple. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Aren't you so glad? Aren't you so glad? Aren't you so glad that your life does not reduce down to trying to build your own kingdom? He makes it simple. You just, God, Jesus says, just join with me in building my kingdom and I will watch over and protect your life. Do you have the faith to believe it? If you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a mathetase, he's given you a mission. Don't miss it. Live it out tomorrow. Let's live it out together because that's what he's called us to do. Let me close this out in a word of prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Some of you are here and today is the day where you go from knowing about Jesus, liking Jesus, aligning yourself with Jesus to stopping everything and making Jesus your king. That's what it means to be saved. Jesus is your savior and your Lord, your savior and your king. Make Jesus your king. And if you want to surrender to him, I want to just lead you in a simple prayer with your head bowed and eyes closed. Just, if you're watching online or at Cooper City or you're here, just make this your prayer. Just silently say this to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I make you my king. Thank you for rescuing me. I want to follow after you. I believe you saved me by the work you did. I make you my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that was your prayer just then, what I want to encourage you to do, if you're watching online, you can go to cityrev.org faith. 
If you're here, you can just grab your cell phone, go to cityrib.org slash faith. We're going to mail you a Bible. That's what those questions, when you go there, are going to ask you a couple questions so we can mail you a Bible. We want to do that this week. If you're here, one step even better is you can take your Get Connected card. You can go to the front lobby. We'll hand, put a Bible in your hands today. Make this the day that you celebrate Jesus as your king. Church, we're going to close with a song. We are going to celebrate that as we go out into our mission, Jesus is behind us. He's for us. He's already won the victory. He is pushing back the darkness. Can we celebrate that today? The light is shining into the darkness, pushing it back. Let's stand as we sing together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.